Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Roisin Ingle and you're all very welcome to the Women's Podcast and this special live episode from the Lavery Room of the National Gallery of Ireland. We have a cast of thousands here, it's wonderful. Um, we're going to be joined by some brilliant women who are a glittering treasure trove of information about women and about art and we're going to be hearing about them later and we're delighted to be joined by National Gallery curator Leah Benson. Performance artist Amanda Coogan and visual artist Alice Maher with the amazing with the amazing glasses. We're also going to be joined later by musician Megan O'Neill, who's come all the way from Kildare. Thank you, Megan. And she has selected two songs to go with this event, which was all put together to mark the centenary of the parliamentary vote for women in Ireland and the election of Constance Markievicz as the first woman to the Parliament of the United Kingdom. So we're going to have a really stimulating evening of conversation about Irish women and art. And just to let you know that on Monday, December 10th, the Irish Times marks 100 years since the 1918 election with a magazine and a unique commemorative poster featuring a specially commissioned poem by Ivan Boland, illustrated by artist Paula McGlynn, articles by Katrina Crow, Ivan Bacic, Una Malali and others who are going to explore how the vote was won by the women of Ireland and how they have fared in the century since. So you can go on the Irish Times website and find that special area there on our site which is going to tell you everything you ever needed to know and some stuff that you can't believe as well. It's a very, very good supplement. I've seen a sneak preview of it. And the magazine is going to be distributed to schools around the country later this week which is brilliant because it's great that younger people get to understand and know and appreciate uh, that hundred years centenary. But here we are at the National Gallery of Ireland and I was going to introduce our first special surprise which is a beautiful choir but I'm actually going to ask Amanda Coogan to introduce it because she knows a little bit even more about the song that they're going to sing. So take it away Amanda Coogan. So um, I am under commission from the National Gallery to have a look at Markovich's legacy which is uh, a contemporary artist look at the exhibition upstairs called Markovich Propaganda and... uh, and portraits, excuse me. Oh my goodness. Luckily, we have Leah Benson on hand. I know. Luckily, we have all of the staff of the National Gallery here in the choir standing beside me. Um, and so, uh, as an artist, you do a lot of research. It kind of gives the musculature to your work. And of course, I'm Googling away at home and I find that there is a poem, a, 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 a song rather, called The Battle Hymn to the Republic written by a Countess Markovich. And I had to double, triple, quadruple check to see that this uh, unbelievable lady who was trained as an artist, trained as a painter, exhibited as a painter, also wrote this uh, hymn to the battlefield, which was the anthem for the Citizens' Army. And uh, so wonderfully, the choir of the National Gallery staff have learnt it and are going to 
This is amazing. Say it for us. I think it's so <laughs> resonant of the time if we're thinking about this. Yeah. Stretching back 100 years to look forward in that kind of way. I, I worry about legacy, but I do think looking back is so important to find a path for the future. So this really, I think the sound of it, just we're in an echo chamber of 100 years ago. It's, it's, it's quite interesting. Let me say. Okay, yeah. let's hear it. This is the National Gallery Choir, and thank you very much for joining us. Take it away with the Constance Markovic's song. It's amazing. <laughs> Breaking. I mean, that's pretty uh, kind of, you know, we won't it's, say no more. B-R-E-X-I-T. I know. It's very If any of you can, if that was just such a great start. No, it, it's actually unbelievable. When we, we listen to those lyrics. I mean, I was, it, it's kind of bloodthirsty. It's almost like the soldier <laughs> song, you know. And I was a little, uh, I suppose, cautious about asking somebody and what it would be for listening to those lyrics de contextualized and recontextualized a hundred years later um and of course her legacy is so problematic uh wonderful and problematic at the same time but i think that we can read these lyrics with fresh eyes and recontextualize them in terms of what's happening with poor al england at the moment but also i i lifted um, one of the lyrics uh, from it floats in the ether. So it says, "Our freedom floats in the ether." Is the line from and Amanda? The song. I think it's a good time then for you to talk about your exhibition. Scenes were there, and we're right floating in the ether. <laughs> um, it's a great title, and I, I did hear the line there in the mm. song. So I, it just sounds amazing. I think I am dying to see it. Tell everyone about what you've done and and why you've responded to Marky Vicks in this way. Uh, so it's a kind of large-scale participative artwork and I'm a fundamentally a live performance artist so a visual artist but I use 
uh, my body and collaborators' bodies. The body is the centrality of my work. And so when I was asked to look at Markovich, it's kind of terrifying because I'm not a a portrait artist or um, a commemorative artist. So it was really important for me that it was this kind of beautiful, ephemeral uh, practice that I make, which is live performance. So uh, looking at suffrage in this year, in this 2018 year, because Markovic has such a long legacy, you know, we heard slightly, I, I, I would have contentions about how we heard about her in 2016 in the commemorations. It we might, might talk have about them later. a little bit okay. of the patriarchy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think this year uh, is the 100th anniversary of her being the first woman to be elected to Parliament. It is the 100th anniversary of suffrage for some women, and again, we can get break down the detail of that. But it is, uh, we can read it as a massive breaking of the glass ceiling. It, we, we all know that there is, it was a stuttering stop-start breakage. So um, just looking at that, I felt it really, really important that 100 women joined me uh, in this. So we very, very simply walk through the gallery. And I've slotted in a lot of different kind of uh, branches into that super simple walk. So we look at a walk and it has the heritage of uh, remembrance, of witness, of protest, of assertiveness, putting your body on the line, marking the territory with your body. And we do that in a very simple way. I've uh, painted, I've constructed and painted costumes. So they're all suffragette white and cream with the purple and green and orange is the Irish suffragette colour on the shoulders. So we all walk in a line silence and we walk through the National Gallery of Ireland and we simply look at paintings or artworks that are made by women artists. Because uh, Markovich has the uh, heritage of before she picked up the gun, uh, she was an exhibiting and trained painter, which was quite a thing, turn of the uh, 20th century for a woman also to be allowed to to, uh, study. There was only specialist ateliers that would train women. And we know from the... um, Uh, the collection of the National Gallery, which collects older work, it is very difficult to find the works of uh, women artists. And we're definitely going to be talking about that with Leah. Just ask me, there's a hundred young women and girls, women of all ages, I presume. How did you go about finding them? And did they think you were a bit mad? Saying, I want to walk. It's unbelievable. I want you to join me and walk around the National Gallery and everyone's going to be looking at it. In in slow motion. And in silence. Yeah, absolutely. No, everyone is up for it. I actually started (laughs) it myself because in some ways to kind of understand the piece, I'm so embodied, I'm an embodied practitioner that I need to walk the halls myself. And so I started on the first and the opening... My, uh, just me and then I was joined by the Dublin Theatre of the Deaf which are long term collaborators of mine and we use a slow motion walk as an exercise in a lot of the work that we do so that was an easy peasy one and then I got a group of uh, I think it was 25 um, secondary school girls and they were just fabulous they were so wonderful so they're just they're, they're not a voting age they're just reaching we can just see them as reaching <laughs> into the future are, are we carving the future for them has Markovic carved the future for us and uh, the week of weeks so the date of the 100 years the 14th of December 
So on the 13th, on Thursday the 13th, the choir will walk with me and we'll go into the Markovich room and we'll sing her song, the battle hymn of the I'm Republic. very like, it's all yeah. a bit, isn't it? I mean, and, then, and then I have third level students uh, coming with, uh, walking with me that afternoon as well. And on Friday the 14th, I'm collecting female Oroctus members from Great. the doll and they're going to walk in with me into the Markovich uh, room. And then on the 15th, I have a big gang of women artists, my peers, my colleagues, and we're walking around very much looking at her. So each walk looks at a different facet of her heritage in some ways. And uh, in the long, the short of it, there's 10 of them. And I'd kind of said in bad maths way, if we have 10 people walking with me for 10 performances, that makes 100. But actually I've had 20, I've had 25, I've had... 30. So I'm sure it will absolutely be 100 plus, but that again conceptually allows the piece of work to look to the future as well. But it's really important that it was 100, 100 women yeah. walking through the gallery. It sounds incredible. I don't know about you guys, but I definitely want to come and experience that. C- come because it's wonderful, actually, because you get a tour via this performance yeah. of all the works <laughs> hanging on the wall well. that are made by women. And speaking of which, we'll bring Leah in here now. Leah's the head curator, and you're exhibition sorry you didn't see that at home listening to this but I nearly knocked over a glass of wine not my wine (laughs) but you are uh, the curator of the exhibition which is called Invisible the in is in brackets so there's a sort of a visible aspect of it Irish women artists from the archives so Leah how did that all come about yeah I'm just going to correct I'm the archivist here um, who curated this exhibition just just in case my colleagues give out but um, that's no problem (laughs) yeah we do you know we have huge archive and library collections here and they're the kind of hidden gem of the gallery you know people walk and they look at the pictures on the walls and they obviously love them and they're very beautiful but what we have in our collections tell the stories behind those pictures and um we're very keen to get them out there and to get people to see these stories so obviously given the year that's in it we started thinking about what stories need to be told that are as yet untold or perhaps only partially told and women were an obvious one so we looked for funding and we got a grant from the department which is going to allow us to catalogue collections and we can now prioritise the collections relating to women artists. So then we decided to look and see what we have and we're we're very short staffed so it's it's one of those things where people give us collections or we acquire them over time and then we have a cataloging backlog so it's great for us now to actually suddenly investigate who Mm. is represented and that's a really interesting question because you wouldn't think walking around and you see you know work by different women artists you kind of don't think well how did that woman end Mm. up being on the walls or being featured in the archives so tell us a bit about how one as a woman ended up being in the National Gallery Archives. Oh, do you know, I mean, it's really hit and miss. Um, And it's a really interesting thing to think about because often those who are represented are not necessarily the best or the most wonderful. They're those who have research conducted about them and books written about them and who get the publicity and who are out there. Um, And to do that, you have to have the research material. So it's a kind of a... There are a lot of women in particular out there who are amazing artists who we'll never hear about because we don't have their documentation. The collections that have come to us have been some of them bought by us because we've actively sought them out. Some of them come through the generosity of donors. Often it's friends of people who come to us and go, you know, I have this, it's going to get lost, it's going to go in a dump, nobody appreciates it. So we do rely on that, but it is hit and miss. It really is in relation to women. Um, And there isn't the big budgets to buy them, you know. But we've been very lucky. Um, 
And what's interesting about the exhibition, and we say that ourselves, it's, it's not representative. It just shows you the women we have in our collection. There are so many out there that we don't have who we would love to document and we would love to... To, to put up there but we just show what we have in our collection yeah. tell us about some of the women Leah that you do have and some of the kind of moments when you were researching this that kind of sparkled for you yeah I mean what was interesting was we were really keen not to box people in or box women in actually you know and not to create um, a kind of a template for the professional woman artist but unfortunately given the circumstances for women over the years th that that is the the real scenario so you know women were denied the same education uh, opportunities as men um, it, you know it's really interesting they, they sort of we didn't have very many female professional artists and then suddenly the renaissance comes and there's this establish of humanism and you know suddenly we're not looking at people as a religion we're looking at people as people and individuals and that was really beneficial to women and you do see women benefiting from that and coming upwards and then those women who flourished often had family members who were artists, brothers or fathers, and they could work in their studios and learn from them. And then the next phase in the kind of late Renaissance was when you have the professional academies. And that's where you see the patriarchy stepping in and the women being cut out. So once it becomes an establishment, teaching is now taken away from the family and these little opportunities, women weren't able to get access to this. Um, it was, it was thought that women couldn't paint, you know, they were too emotional and uh, they wouldn't be able for this at all. And one thing that became really important with the academies was uh, life drawing. And this required models and this required male nude models and women were not allowed study from life. And this was a huge barrier to them actually becoming professional artists and developing their skills. And what's really interesting, you talk about, you know, large gaps. Um, Angelica Kaufman, who's this wonderful artist, was one of the signatories to the British uh, Royal Academy. And that was in the, seven, I think, about 1728. Another woman wasn't signed in to the British Academy till 1922. You know, you have this gap. A this, reminder of the gap with oh, Markovic and the next Absolutely, woman into this the dark cabinet. kind of chasm. And so over the years in Ireland, you know, women, it was in the maybe late sort of 1860s that they actually got into the academies at all to, to draw, but they certainly weren't allowed into life classes. Um, they were in France, so women did travel um, a bit later on. In the 1890s, they got into life classes. But Sarah Purser was the first female member of the Royal Academy in 1924. Um, you know, so in and around the time when Markovic and all of these other women were groundbreaking, it was the same for artists. But it was a huge denial for so long. And then what we saw is when they did get in there and, you know, when they did actually find a place or they were allowed study, as men could study, um, they were criticised and they were really put up against And do you it. find that in the archives? Do you see yeah. these kind of... Oh, yeah. is, it, is it written or what, what way does it Yeah, come? it's written, yeah. Keating like what would, kind of would things? not be behind the door in basically <laughs> disparaging female artists. Actually, when you talk about groundbreaking, um, I was thinking about, you know, the youth and the age and the bravery of these women. And if you look at uh, Mainy Jellet in particular who, um, and again, not wanting to box people in, but she did have opportunities to travel abroad. And women at the time tended to look towards Europe. I'm, I'm generalising here. People will shoot me for this, but um, <laughs> bear with me. Um, you know, men would look to the west of Ireland and, you know, the Celtic revival, whereas women looked abroad. And people like, women like Mainy Jellis went and studied in the studios in Paris and then came back. And in 1923, she exhibited a piece called Decoration. And she couldn't 
exhibit it in the Royal Academy, they wouldn't have her. So women were, in, as well as some men, uh, responsible for setting up the Dublin Painters Society as an alternative place to display their work because they couldn't, uh, they were, they were non-conformist and they were bringing back ideas like cubism. But she displayed this piece of work, decoration, and in 1923, and it was called Subhuman Art. And, you know, people said things like, you know, she's, um, it was like she'd caught a disease. It was like malarial. That's what her work was described as. It was vicious. Um, and I was looking at her and thinking, how misunderstood, because actually she was this really devout woman, and decoration is, is a Madonna and child piece, if you look at it very and well. what was their problem? I mean, maybe it's just blatant misogyny and sexism but really was there this kind of incredulity that a woman should be in this world? Yeah it was anti-modernism absolutely It was anti-modernism. This is Alice yeah. Meyer coming you know, into the conversation. And that they, would, they would have considered you know with the um, Irish Renaissance you might say that the west of Ireland was more fitting uh, subject matter you know <laughs> okay. for our creation of our new nation than yeah. international modernism or cubism, which would be considered a muck, as oh, you said. But I, I, it wasn't just because of who she was. It was an anti-modernism. Absolutely. But I think what I was going to say was that um, what struck me was that she was this 26-year-old woman, this young woman who came back, and it, it was just really brave. You know, she stood up there and she exhibited her artwork and she took it and she took the criticism and she continued and she carried on to create. And I think she, that's what struck me was that the bravery of this young woman um 26 yeah, yeah when you were 26. talking about her i was imagining an older no, woman for no, some reason but no, yeah. this young young woman who was just bringing back these ideas and as alice said you know a lot of it was a reaction you know we come through this awful political turmoil and people turn towards conservatism and safety and you wanted the kind of warmth of the west of ireland mountains and the beautiful seas you didn't want this mad stuff coming in from paris it was kind but, of isolation isn't yeah. it too, wasn't it, it was yes. like you know that isolation of ireland as the place to be and dancing at the crossroads and having yeah. lovely fires. And especially for a woman to be, be yeah. sort of pushing the boundaries a bit, that wasn't yeah. the thing yeah. at all. Yeah, and I think, you know, when we looked at these women, and as I said, they're, you know, it was just a snapshot. These are just the women who are represented in our collections. Um, it, it just, it is very hard work. And, you know, certainly the establishment were no friend to them. No. And funnily enough, you know, you talk to um, female artists and, you know, talking to artists like Imogen Stewart, who, um, you know, she would say, ironically, the Catholic Church was her probably best friend wow. because they paid for artwork and they they, they took on commissions from, from people. And, and they, they were less amazingly modern, actually. Absolutely, yeah. You know, amazingly modern, mm. the stuff that they commissioned. Not anymore, like, but in that era, I would say, Absolutely. with the parties and stuff, was the only place to make a bit of money. But something <laughs> I wanted to say about, about those women like Mani and Evie and all these fantastic women who went to Europe, um, and they Markovic. were all well off. Yeah, including Mark. Uh, okay. The class so, thing. So class it's a class thing for me as well. It's not simply, you know, uh, um, gender. Like it's class. You know, you'll, you'll see that. Like got money, the vote money, as well. It was rich women got the go. vote, wasn't yeah. it? Initially, if you had to own land to be able to yeah. vote, right? Mm. Or you had to be over 30 as well. Over 30 you know, and, and It, it, it wasn't even just class. It's, you'll see this in the exhibition, but the, we broke it down by social background, yes. education, travel, and those are the, the kind of beginnings of what we looked at. And social background and education, they were 
predominantly wealthy middle class, predominantly from uh, educated families, many of which would have had artistic uh, members of the families who would have you know, encouraged this and driven this. Um, and the wealth meant that they had an opportunity to travel abroad, learn languages and study in places like Paris. But you certainly didn't see young women from the tenements mm. you know, progressing forward and becoming artists. What was, I think, interesting about the women, and if you look at, say, the Yates sisters and the Kula Industries, um, you know, they were looking at trying to bring a form of education and using their skills to, to educate young women um, and the, in terms of the embroidery workshops and things like that. But again, these wouldn't have been tenement girls. You know, they would have been girls from good mm. families sent to Elizabeth Yates's drawing classes, you know, for whatever, a shilling ago. Um, which, yeah, as I said, we... When we looked at the archives and the collections, we desperately tried not to box people in, but in fact, there's no avoiding it. If, mm. if you didn't have certain privileges, you weren't a professional woman artist. Mm. Again, another exhibition I think we all need to... How long is it running for? It'll be up now until February. Brilliant. So plenty of time to go and it's see it. parallel with the Markovich Brilliant. exhibition. So they're both running yeah. together. Yeah. What a There's so much bounty. wonderful work. Al Alice, I want to bring you in here. It's okay. I want to ask you, could you give us a little potted history of your own artistic life in a very brief thing for anyone who doesn't know? And then okay. I want to talk to you about some of the artworks featuring women that over the years have caught your eye and the ones that really stand out for you. But tell us about your artistic life first. Well, um... I suppose I, I started late, you might say, and I find that I didn't go to art college education until I was in my late 20s. So before that, I had various jobs. I went to college and then had other jobs. And in fact, I um, lived near here in Dublin. I was a waitress in um, the Royal Dublin Hotel. I don't think it's there anymore, opposite the Gresham there. And I lived in a flat bedsit over there on um, Bagot Street or Upper Mount Street with my friend Mary, who's here tonight. Um, but hey, Mary. Uh, on the way, on the way to that sounds like a great life. I imagine there yeah. were some parties in that bedsit. <laughs> but uh, on the way to work, you know, I used to call like I just like to talk about the National Gallery and um, you know the fact that it's free, you know, for people to go and visit. And um, I used to walk in. There was no new part. Obviously, it was the old part then. And I would go in there tired and whatever and look at paintings that I really loved mm -hmm. and um, I wasn't even aware that there was a gender difference you know what I mean I never really took that on or even thought male female kind of thing but like everybody else like I didn't think about it you know what I mean then but I think what I looked for were images of females of women in paintings and from that I have a, had a number of favorite paintings that I always went to see that kind of gave me strength mm -hmm. and one of them was um a small painting by uh, Diego Velasquez called The Maid at the Supper of Emmaus. I don't know if any of you know that painting. It's a very small, small painting. It's like a section of a painting rather than a full painting. And uh, the maid is there and she's black. She's a young black woman, which is very unusual also to see in her lovely brown dress and her hair is in a uh, turban. And the Supper at Emmaus, which is obviously the major um, event of the evening is happening in the background and that was a kind of a lesson to me in a way um, that what's happening you know the main event may not be the most important thing that the maid and there she was and you can see she's listening listening to what's going on and there are all her pots and pans you know and, and the uh, instruments of her work in front of her so it's like a working girl and you know that really struck me and I loved that painting also mm. and um 
Alice was talking to me about this on the phone the other day, and yeah. immediately it's great, the great thing. You know, you can just, uh, Alice was telling me about it. I was like, oh, yes, yes, the man, I know that one really well. And at the time, I was like Googling it up. So I had the image in front of me on the screen as Alice yeah. spoke about it. It was amazing. I'd really recommend it as an art yeah. well, lecturing sort of type of thing. Usually, like <laughs> Velasquez would do these huge, you know, uh, figures of paintings with, you know, symbolic figures and, you know, painters in it and kings and queens and princesses and, you know, but, uh, but actually he did really look at, at maids and servants also. But this was a particular favourite of mine. Do we know why he had that particular interest and why he put someone who would never feature in a painting so prominently? Do we have any insight no, into that? I have no. Do you have any interest in uh, any insight? In I that don't, area? but I'm sure yeah. we have something in the archive okay. that we can yeah. look at. Yeah. <laughs> we it shall find like out. It looks like a fragment to me, you know, it looks yeah. like a fragment. But another painting I really liked, um, Roshin at that time also, was called El Sueño, The Dream by Francisco Goya. And it's a small painting as well. So it's like <laughs> I was attracted to these small paintings. But it shows a young woman and she's just falling asleep and she's turning away from the viewer. And it's like as if her imagination is turning into, you know, it's like a cloud. Her clothes are like cloudy and ephemeral. And she's like as if she's just turning into her imagination. And I think that figure also spoke to me. And I think that you actually go to art in a way to look for what's there already inside you in a way. And you're searching for something to echo back what you already know. That's that's beautiful. Like I'm just staying with that for a moment. (laughs) And then is that how you came to art then to practice it? Because you were drawn to these things and it felt like a longing. I was always drawing. It's not like I wasn't. Every book I had was covered in drawings (laughs) and you know what I mean? But um, I didn't really know that you could follow that into a career, if you know what I mean, that that could be your life, you know. So it took me a while like, to, to go to art school. How did you go down that road? Um, well, I was working in a factory in Cork, HGW, and they make paints. And I was... Well, um, that's kind of appropriate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. But... Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I'm the so lay person who worked, paint yeah. an artist, you know. Yeah, as a kind of personal assistant, you know, to the boss or something. But anyway, I was going to all these night classes in right. Cork, in the Crawford there, upstairs. Oh, yeah. And night classes. And I'd be there at work during the day drawing in the drawer of my work for the night. You know what I mean? So it was like night time. But then slowly, kind of night time took over the day and I just switched. So I, you know, went to college and then worked at night to pay for it. Um, and that's how you became yeah. the living well, legend that she is now. <laughs> um, thank you for sharing about those paintings. I think we'll all go up and when I, when I put the podcast out, we'll put a little line so everyone can remember what the paintings are as well, um, in case you're like me and forget. Um, Amanda, what about your artistic life and coming into it? Because what's interesting um, about you particularly is using your body as art. And I think, you know, we're not really as familiar with that kind of art. And performance artists sometimes gets a bad rap or it gets really? seen. Well, yes. Let me challenge Amanda, that. you must totally have heard. You must kidding. have heard. No, I mean, the, thing, the, 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 the most important thing I, I will say is that I'm a visual artist. Mm. I mean, Alice Maher taught me you know, and I came up through painting and sculpture and then I specialised in performance arts. So it's very much performance from the visual arts. Mm. And if you think, I treat the body as a sculpture, as a three-dimensional sculpture, except it has this wonderful dynamism that it's another person living, breathing, thinking in front of you in the gallery instead of a piece of marble or a piece, an object or a piece of wood. Uh, so that, that's the dynamism that I play with all the time. And also I like to understand and dream and build work through the body. So what they call an embodied 
practice. So I'd be ignited by the visuals, but actually I need to understand a piece by being physical with it. So either jumping around my studio (laughs) or uh, jumping around uh, a a large drawing or, which I, I would have done in some drawing classes with uh, Alice. Alice was, we were talking about swooping in as practitioners into art college for a couple of days and all the students adoring you and then swooping back out to the studio. And that is exactly what I do these days. And Alice did exactly that for me when I was in Limerick School of Art and Design in the painting department. And she wouldn't remember at all. And we had big, huge pieces of paper on the wall and we were allowed to lep around it. And you just had a seminal show in the Bell table with the tents yeah. so what was the name of that show Trist. Trist. yeah 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 wow. and, the tents, and the tents nine or something oh it? yeah i'm old yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I i have a lot yeah. of uh yeah. uh history yeah. <laughs> but you know you can't make art without your body either no you know so um, and you can't understand no. art without your body either no. we live and breathe the world through our bodies mm. we filter it through our bodies yeah. we understand it like my parents are are deaf they can't hear mm. so they understand the world in a completely different way than we who have ears and can understand it or somebody who is blind understands the world in a radically different way wonderfully different somebody who's sitting in a wheelchair understands a different way somebody who has black skin understands it a different way somebody who has a male body understands it in a very different way to us with us women with women's bodies (laughs) how wonderfully descriptive um but so what i would say is that my work absolutely centers at its core its understanding its springs from an understanding of the world out through the body of a woman and then it extrapolates it, it on. And so often my work, and it particularly floats in the ether, um, it's only women. And I kind of make no apologies for it. Um, do you get some men now saying, Amanda, you're very exclusionary. Why don't you put some men in your work? Oh, and also it's the men who say we should have a men's day, you know. Yeah. We do have a men's day. We just had it a couple of weeks ago and we'd loads of articles in the Irish Times about it that I commissioned <laughs> deliberately because men are very important. They are. Yes. But also, also they are. We wouldn't have won the referendum in May no, without exactly. male feminists. And look at Simon and Harris and Leo Varadkar if they hadn't been there championing it. Absolutely. You know, so. And our partners and our husbands yeah. and our friends and yeah. uh, all those other other from other from the female body <laughs> I'm, I'm joking um, uh, but in saying that I, I'm very much a visual artist I'm like thoroughbred I have I've done every piece of academic that you can do up to PhD level now I've just nowhere else to go all within the visual arts so I'm very much a visual Are you artist Dr. Amanda Coogan? I am I should really call myself a doctor all the time I'm Dr. Maher too by oh the way Oh my okay. god <laughs> There are two doctors in the house everybody This is oh I can't believe it Sorry yeah. Leah Doctor? No, no, not no, yet no. Okay <laughs> Not either, so you know. Not yet. (laughs) Leah, what about um, the body then and looking back at your work and looking into the archive? Um, I'm just thinking of all these women who had all these restrictions placed on them uh, in so many ways, in terms of even clothing and the way they were um, allowed to be in the world. Do you get a sense of that from the archives or just a sense of a double life that they were leading in a way? Because the expectations of them are one thing, but yet their artistic expression found its voice somehow and they managed to do that. That must be a really interesting contrast. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because... 
predominantly those women who are represented are those who are the Amandas and the Alices of their time. You know, they 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 moved beyond that those constraints and they practiced. But again, at the time, it was because they weren't held back. And we do have these sort of little quiet whispers in the archives from women who could have been great artists, could have been wonderful artists, but weren't. And there's some letters we have. Um, we have a letter from Dermot O'Brien, who is president of the RHA, to a lady called Betty Webb. And Betty is interesting to us. We have nothing on her, very little. But we have these letters saying, you're really good, Betty. Congratulations. Oh, you're really? terrific. You're a great oh. artist. We, we don't we have anything great from promise. Betty. And we know that Betty got married and had children and was no more an artist. So it's almost the silences that are the representation of those constraints on the body. And then these little whispers that come in there. And there are some uh, women who are members of, say, great artistic families, you know, say the Yates families, who wouldn't, um, you know, Jack Yates's wife, Cotty, is there more of a whisper in that um, we have a sketchbook by Cotty and we have a few other things, but she kept them in this private portfolio. So it was her private space and she never intended these for public consumption or they were never going to go up in the walls of the RHA, but she still practised and, you know, she was an artist in her own right, but it's quietly so. And then there was wonderful uh, Margaret Clark. You know, who was the wife of uh, yeah. Harry Clark, and he, he got all the attention, oh, you know, for the glass, and it's beautiful and everything. But she, she's a fantastic, well, she a, had a fantastic show there's here. There's a really good quote from Margaret Clark. I mean, she had a solo exhibition in the 20s. She was mm. a really good artist. And she didn't do glass, did she? What did she do? No, she no, painted. no, she painted, and she spent time in the Aran Islands and, you know, mm. did, did beautiful outdoor scenes. But her, um, her show in the 20s was reviewed by Thomas McGreevy, who was a poet and uh, later a director of the, the National Gallery. And he was a real gentleman. In fact, he was one of those male voices who, I think, in about 1923, said, uh, you know, is the reason why we've no women in the RHA because the men are a bit intimidated that they might be better than them. But he reviewed her show. And in his review, he, he described her as Margaret Clark, wife of the wonderful Harry Clark and student of the great William, uh, William Orpen. And she wrote back publicly and said, uh, at some point, Mr. McGreevy, it would be great to be acknowledged as the artist. And when, what year was that that she, that was, she wrote? I think about that. 1926. That's amazing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that she was writing not, that and you know, acknowledging out loud, yeah. that's not acceptable. Yeah. When you think of how we're still, mm. in a way, having to say that a little bit. Yeah, she, I'm, I'm not just the wife. I am not did just he, did the student. Did she get a response? Did he write back to her and apologise? We don't have a written okay. response, but I, I, I'm sure he was, I'm you sure know. I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's so interesting, Liam. Yeah, so again, what we have in the archives are the women who came through, but there are so many out there that uh, we don't know about. Um, mm. And it's interesting, I always think of contemporary artists now and the the legacy that people leave, and are you, you know, are people aware of this, that... Um, you know, this is how we remember society with what we have left to research today. And it's so important that we don't just have the establishment because that stuff always gets kept. Mm -hmm. From an archivist's perspective, mm -hmm. that stuff is safe. Mm -hmm. It's the kind of whispers and the little quiet voices that are going to get lost. And then, you know, it's a whole generation wondering, were women, you know, how did they go? How were women artists in the 1980s or the yeah. 90s or the, the noughties? Mm -hmm. um, and it's something we're really thinking about today. You know, the representation of people through history 
and the quiet voices yeah. and making sure you kind of scoop them in. Alice, I'm thinking there as, as Leah's speaking about them, the artist for Appeal the Eighth, because you yes. were very involved in that. And, yeah. I, and I'm just wondering, was that um, sort of, obviously there was lots of motivation around it, but the fact that artists wanted to put their stamp down and yes. make that legacy and say at this time, artists were, you know, working to, to get rid of the Eighth Amendment. Yeah, that artists had always been political uh, in their aspiration and the people who founded the state were artists, as we know, mm-hmm. as well. And Markovic was an artist. And Markovic, <laughs> you know, was an artist. And in a way, why we had the artist campaign was to kind of, it's like to counter the absolute ugliness of, you know, the no campaign, you know, with their horrible imagery, negative stance, lack of equality you know so in a way we wanted to make beautiful things yeah. things that people could rally behind people that would be proud to be involved yeah. in and speaking um, of Amanda and her walking through uh, through space I mean I too believe that like a human being can change a space just by being in it and we uh, as part of our campaign we organized a procession through the city of Limerick and um I think that actually changed the space of Limerick. Limerick was known as the confraternity city, died in the wool, you know, very conservative kind of space. And we um, followed the um, pathway of where the confraternities walked and women weren't allowed to walk in them. They had to stand on the pavement. Um, so we walked, walked that whole um, way through Limerick. And I feel, you know, that we actually changed that <laughs> space. I certainly felt changed Absolutely. after Absolutely. Can, I, but, uh, can yeah. I just describe what they did? They didn't just walk yeah. the way of the confraternity. You also, these artworks, which were banners. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, uh, aped the vocabulary of the confraternities. Also, and some of them based on uh, paintings from the collection uh-huh. of the yeah. National Gallery, yeah. by the way. Yeah. So actually by that putting your body on the street yeah. in this performance work that mm. the artists Repeal and uh, Alice and Rachel Fallon uh, may, and many other artists made. Yeah, Cecily Byrne, uh, Paula Meehan, yeah. Edna Jordan. A lot yeah. of brilliant women. Like yeah. huge yeah. musculature in terms of artists, uh, female practitioners coming in behind something with artworks that are political, that are looking to that. I fundamentally believe that art is political. Absolutely. It's our job as artists of now to scratch around in the hidden, in the on the side stuff and actually speak about that, shine light on it or uh, pull it front and centre in some ways and really, really importantly. And I think it's really interesting just to go, to, to circle it back to Markovich who was a painter, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah. She was an well, artist. I do think also, you know, the reason why that campaign uh, was so successful is because art is complex. It deals with complex ideas. It deals with greyness, in-betweenness. It's not that black and white, yeah. yes or no. So, and so we were able to get in there with the complexity mm. of thought. And I think people really rallied to that. Yeah. And they thought, no, it's not as easy as people are telling us. It's yeah. actually much more complex. And it gives people time. Also, when you're looking at something to think about it. That's very true. Yeah. Leah? And, do you know, I was just, when we were, I'm going to get the quote wrong, but broadly speaking, when we were looking in the archives and we looked at the writings of Mamie Jellett, she had this lovely quote where she talks about how the legacy uh, that a society leaves and how it's judged and how the real spirit of a society is judged in the future is by the art that is created at any given time. And we have seen that, you know, in the archives, you can see, it, it's, it's how we know what was being done or how people 
people were feeling or what was going on. And the kind of real truth of it is in the art that's created. Um, and that's why it's really it's not interesting. Not necessarily the history that's written. No, no. I mean, and again, like the history that's written is a filter. Mm-hmm. And we say this to all of the students that come into us. You pick up a book that's published and that's been filtered through someone else's eyes. If you want to see the truth, come in and read the letters and the mm-hmm. diaries and, mm-hmm. you know, look at the, look at the, look at the, the sketchings from life that these people did and these, these women did in this instance. And there, make up your own truth and decide and back it up. But don't just take it for granted mm-hmm. that it's in a publication, that that's, that's mm-hmm. what's right. That's a very good point. Can we take it up to, to now? Um, we saw in recent times, the last few years, Waking the Feminists and we looked at the theatre world in terms of women and I'd just be interested to know in terms of the art world where you think the challenges are uh, for women artists now versus, you know, we can hear very clearly what you're talking about for the women back in the day. But what are they now and what needs to be done, if anything, um, to help that cause? Well, they're the very same as they are every place else, you know, and it's about uh, <laughs> respect and equality, but mostly it's about money, actually, mm-hmm. and, um, and value and um, your work and your life and your art being valued similarly because that's in a way if you look at the statistics you probably will see that um, for instance prices for you know male artists reach much higher than you know and in the collections like who's in the collection who's the official who are the official artists yeah. of nations. Well, he has you know, a good anecdote well, about that. Say, there's a book that will be published next year uh, by a woman called Helen Gorrell, who is an artist and has looked into the area of feminism and art. And apparently, she's done all of this research into it, and that if a man... If you look at unsigned work, if a man signs an artwork, it goes up in value. If a woman signs it, it goes down. And she has statistics to back this up. So the kind of power of masculinity over art is really far-reaching. And, you know, as Alice said, it it does come down to money and it does come down to people making a living and Mm. being supported in that. Because, you know, this this notion that art for the aristocracy and art for the wealthy and, you know, as a woman, you have to come from a wealthy family or you have to inherit money in order to practice and be professional isn't on it's not a runner but you know it has to be supported um i I think in 2008 a group of performance artists uh called the gorilla girls Mm. came over to ireland and they did a statistical survey of some of our key institutions within uh the irish art world and now it is 10 year old statistics Mm. Uh, but they found in the collection of the National Gallery here that no, was... He is not looking happy. Yeah. There's 5%. 5%. Yeah, yeah. 5%. We can kind of... Okay, we can kind of go... Right. That historically, it is yeah. a yeah. National Gallery. Their remit is to collect... Our cut-off was 1960. 1960, so old or older work. And we can see, you know, some... They're, <laughs> they're making some movement. That's not to let anybody off the hook, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, in 2008... 14% of the solo exhibitions in the Irish Museum of Modern Art. So a solo exhibition for a contemporary artist is the big um, voice. It's the place where you, you are able to stretch your wings and speak a lot. Uh, there was 14% of solo exhibitions in the Irish Museum of Modern Art 10 years ago. And the RHA, which we discussed quite a bit, uh, I'm not a member and I have a particular 
notions about that. But um, Alice has notions that, on her I, necklace. Everyone has to look yes. and see. And, that's uh, my friend. That's <laughs> uh, made by they, my friend Margaret O'Connor. Big up to Margaret. Go on, Amanda. So the RHA, the Royal Hibernian Academy, in 2008 had 76% male uh, membership. Now, Abigail O'Brien, the amazing artist, has just become the president there and has put in her remit that she wants a fif- she wants to uh, uh, strive for a 50. 50 representation. Alice is a member. That's so, right. <laughs> 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 well, maybe working from the inside. So, Amanda, yeah. are you going to get rid of your notions being... now and join now that Abigail has said that's well, what she no, wants? No, certainly. I would actually yeah. row in and do anything yeah. for, for a female art, uh, president, absolutely. But before, I was certainly the barking <laughs> performance artist. <laughs> you know, uh, I think that uh, often performance artists are oppositional. And but you will find, I've I think you'll find that um, in the art world, you often find at the very high, at the top uh, women um, directors mm. now like a lot of the institutions it's certainly for instance, changed in, in the Ireland has changed yeah. an awful lot and an awful lot of people but you know if you examine those as well we don't know if they're very highly paid positions either and I think that's also you know a case of money if you think about it yeah. there's an awful lot of work done in the arts for nothing there's an awful lot of work done part-time. There's an awful lot of work done zero-hours contracts, you know, and this is what women are having to accept uh, in order to um, advance, perhaps. Yeah, I'm I, not, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, I absolutely put up my hands. I believe in quotas, uh, but I believe in a 50-50 quota and certainly in our cultural institutions mm. across the board, fundamentally. But I think that maybe in the last while the statistics look good. But I would ask, show me the budgets Mm. and the funding. And I can guarantee from my experience and from my colleagues' experience that the funding is totally and utterly different. I think that there is a real issue here in our... I believe that artists, we are a biosphere that kind of bleeds into the whole of society. So we might be the, the, the people digging in, in the dirt, we as producers of artwork, digging in the dirt and finding these things and, and working, making new vocabulary, be it in the visual arts, be it in, in whatever way your artwork manifests itself. So we are the ones who pluck that up. And that bleeds into the biosphere of our society, not just our cultural society, our society. So who makes those, uh, those research, gets down dirty into the muck, into the mines to find these things? Is these people who are maybe elite people, artists? Alice is about to murder me. Mm-hmm. But actually... We're also not very well remunerated. The Visual Artists Ireland survey a couple of years ago, I'm sorry to be statistical about that, found that most artists, I mean, it's a shocking number, earn under 10,000 a year. But what female artists are paid and what male artists are paid for commissions, for um, acquisitions, is shocking. Shocking. Well, it's a whole cultural, like it's a cultural change that needs to happen. You know, in terms of value, it's actually which valuing. there is across and all also, the different sectors. It's not just well. being valued, yeah. but also valuing yourself. Absolutely. And the, well, you know what you put as your salary that you want, yeah. or what you put as the price on your work. You know, so it's not just from the outside; it's also from the inside it's out. It's a fascinating conversation, and we could carry on. I want to bring in Megan here now, who's going to sing us a couple of songs. Um, but before, while she's getting herself organised. 
ending on a sort of a hopeful note, maybe. Like if we look 100 years. <laughs> I don't, you know, I'm, I'm one of those glass half full annoying people, but I do like to be. Because I think, Amanda, you alluded to it. There is hope. There is oh, a absolutely. change happening. I think we're at a very exciting time, not just in art, in all sorts of sectors. I, I personally feel very excited about younger people like when I talk to teenagers now which I do quite a lot and I'm just that they don't have the baggage that many of us um, here in this room will have had they've, they've, they have never had to take it on even to get rid of it we might have got rid of some of our baggage but they haven't had it in the first place and I'm so excited to see like um, what that's going to manifest in and, and how that's going to be and I think you know it's really interesting when we think about the archivist's crate and what goes into that crate so what is made in history so if it's all of these what we would think of as if ephemeral, not very important, little sketches, little paintings on costumes, letters, all of those things will build up a much better picture mm. for that because if you look around Ireland, the most it's women artists are, are are the most prominent, I would say, in the visual arts. Very heavy hitting uh, musculature to our female practitioners. Uh, and we would hope that that would reflect in some ways in the history, but we're complaining that it's not reflecting in the budgets okay. <laughs> and the writing. Alice, little um, positivity. Well, I, well, I'd say that archiving is the new art, actually. <laughs> I support that. And the, yeah, like it's all about archiving now. You know, it's all about archiving, and like that seems to be the new way to collect history in a way to archive the ephemera and the stuff that's kind of left over rather than the main mm. stuff. And that's a really interesting direction. Like I think, yeah. but I mean, as for the struggle it's an ongoing struggle you know and as we are uh, you know fighting for our equality and kind of semi-reaching it mm. you know in certain ways there's somebody else already being ignored by us there's some other group Absolutely. that has been othered by us yep. we don't yeah. see them like I didn't see when yeah. I was in the National Gallery when I, in 1970 mm-hmm. you know for so you know, you have to be aware all the time that the struggle goes on for equality. And it's not just about your equality. No. It's about everybody's. And we do have to keep reminding ourselves. And I think that's why intersectional feminism has been so, for me anyway, and I know a lot of people I speak to, illuminating and that idea of, you know, if there's somebody not in the room, which there are several people not in this room, for example, uh, whether it's, well, your, your, your parents have a disability and you're very aware of that, but people of colour, also the people who are excluded in, in sometimes, um, and it, that can be a class thing too, that sort of idea of the middle white middle class white feminist is very much alive and we all have to look and we're all on a bit of a journey and we're all trying to see where uh, where it needs to go but I'll give the final word to you Leah I, mean, I was just going to say well, I'm delighted that the archives are the new art yeah. you know? <laughs> <laughs> we were very supportive of that but it's from we are being supported I think more and more so in terms of trying to collect a history but as I said before not just the establishment like a true history or as true as that can possibly be because there's always filters you know we filter everything and I filter it but that if we look out there and just try and get as clear a picture as possible not for us to tell you what's happening but for the next generation to interpret Mm. what's happening and look into it um you know, uh, women were always heavy hitters in the arts in Ireland. You know, it was always said that we were strong in Paris. We were, we brought that strength back to Ireland. Um, but it's just paying for it now. You know, we need we need the money in there. But from our perspective, yeah, we, we are more supportive than we used to be. And we're definitely keen for people to see the, the stories behind okay. behind actual pictures in the walls I, I think or the it, movement. It's brilliant what, what the gallery is doing between the float, uh, Floats on the Ether and between the Invisible um, exhibition as well. 
well. And I'm so glad you came to join us for this conversation. It's been really fascinating. I'm not, I am that quote, you know, I don't know much about art, but I know what I like. You know, I'm that, guy, I'm that person who goes into galleries and kind of goes, oh, I really like that, but knows nothing about it. But I really related to what you said, Alice, about something, uh, something inside you that you need answered. You can kind of find that, even if you haven't studied it or you don't know anything about it. So I think we all need to expose ourselves more to these things because it's a human longing that we all have. And uh, I don't know how I'm going to link longing and you, Megan, but anyway, Megan was longing for a parking space and she found one right outside. It's, it's incredible. So that, there we go. So I'm going to let Megan introduce you and she's picked out a couple of songs that you felt would be sort of, it would fit in with the theme. So Megan O'Neill, give her a round of applause there. I am, um, Roisin told me the, the title of this podcast and I write all of my own songs so I haven't particularly written a song about this issue although I can relate to absolutely everything because being a woman in any domain in the arts you're kind of, um, well, not, not just a woman actually a lot of my friends are men and also don't get paid very much for being musicians so <laughs> I think we're just doomed um, but I picked uh, this first song which I wrote a couple of years ago and um, it's one of those things, actually, it's, it's really um, great how you just ended because you said you look at a piece of artwork and you find something that you need from that and, and songs are the same way. Um, and I wrote this song um, as a poem, actually, and I never intended it for, for it to be a song because it was really personal to me. And I lived in London for five years and our house had been broken into and I woke up in the middle of the night and I found this stranger in my living room. So I wrote a poem about it. And then I came to my band at the time we were recording. And my guitarist was like, you have to write a song about that. And I was like, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> then I'll have to relive it every time I sing it. And he was like, no, I'm telling you, it's cathartic. You got to do it. So I did it. But I play this song live. I have played this song live many times. Um, a lot of the time with a full band. And I've had three or four women come up to me afterwards and say, that's an incredible song and it's really helped me to deal with the domestic violence in my life, which is not at all what, what it's about for me. But um, I'll stop talking and I'll play it for you. It's called Walls. Curse it, fool, my God, what have you 
So Megan, you're going to sing us another song. Would you? I do. That was a beautiful, beautiful song. And then the introduction I loved almost as much as well. So your voice is very calming. Um, so tell us about uh, this next one as well. This next one is very new. Um, I've released three records to date, and this one is going to be on the next record, which is going to come out next year. Um, and I wrote this with three incredible female songwriters in London. And I have to say, in my genre, which is uh, the kind of folky Americana genre in the UK, the women are kicking ass. We are like, and I'm, I'm, I lived there for five years, so I'm lucky to count myself in that group, but the women songwriters are just amazing. And um, I wrote this song with them, and I wrote it a little bit about actually feeling very invisible um, in society in London, because it's easy, and you live in a big city, and, and nobody knows you, and you very rarely bump into somebody you know, which is not like where I'm from. I'm from this tiny village in Kildare and everyone's my cousin, so... Um, which is genuinely true. There are two pubs and they're both Murphys, so... I'm, I'm screwed either way. <laughs> and um, I wrote this song about feeling a bit like... Um, I was very lucky, I guess, to live in London, but to have a sanctuary at home that every time I could come home, I would know everybody. And, and Ireland, the title of the song is Winter Sun, and Ireland was a bit of, a bit of my winter sun, which is ironic, really, because we don't really get any sun in the winter. I just thought about that now, actually. Maybe I need to change the title. Oh. Anyway, this one's called Winter Sun.
is one of the reasons I love Twitter because we uh, we just follow each other on Twitter and then we were DMing and then I was like honey come do the podcast and it's so and I nice I was like where do I park yeah and then she was like <laughs> then then I borrowed a fiver offered to pay my taxi while she got out of the car I mean it's a whole story but this is the first time we've met but I really love that and thank you very much for coming um, I just want to thank you all very much for being here I hope you've enjoyed it as much as, as we have I mean I was a bit daunted and I said that to them earlier just talk as if you're talking to a 12 year old because like I don't really know much about art and I sometimes feel a bit intimidated by but what you've done is um, <laughs> yeah no but tell tell the stories of the people involved and it just becomes a, like a totally different thing because it can be elitist as we've talked about and it can be hard to access for some people but I think tonight uh, has been not like that at all and just really great so I'd just like to thank Leah Benson, Alice Maher, Amanda Coogan, Megan O'Neill uh, for, for being so wonderful tonight thank you very much Actually, uh, today in the UN, Ivan Boland read a poem, um, which is incredible. Uh, and it's an incredible poem because um, I, I actually have the poem here and you're not allowed to tell anyone I read it out, but it's going to be out on Monday in the podcast and in this supplement that I told you about. So will I read it just because I think it's... Um, okay, this is... She wrote, she, she wrote it, um, she, I think she was commissioned by the, U, the UN, the Irish um, part of the UN did, and it's been translated into s several different languages, and it's going to come out, and it's a really special thing. It's called, Our Future Will Become the Past of Other Women. 
Show me your hand. I see our past, your palm roughened by heat, by frost, by pulling a crop out of the earth, by lifting a cauldron off the hearth, by stripping rushes dipped in fat to make a wick, make a rush light. That was your world, your entry to our ancestry in our darkest century. Ghost sufferer, our ghost sister, remind us now again that history changes in one moment with one mind, that it belongs to us, to all of us. As we mark these hundred years, we will not leave you behind. No one is left behind or should be as we honour this centenary. A hundred years ago, a woman's vote becoming law became the right of Irish women. We remember them as we celebrate this freedom. Freedom is not abstract. It is not a concept. It is not an ethic only nor a precept. It can also be a hope raised then defeated then renewed. It can be a voice braided into the silences of other women who came before. Today we note the achievement of Irish suffragists as we mark the act, the law, the vote. We honour also the hours of doubt, the years of work. Today we offer to these women our thanks. Here we say some of their names to honour all of their names. Louis Bennett, Sissy Callahan, Helen Chenevy, Charlotte Despar, Louise Gavin Duffy, Eve Gore Booth, Anna Haslam, Kathleen Lynn, Mary McSweeney, Helena Maloney, Florence Moon, Sarah Peirce, Constance Markiewicz, Hannah Sheehy Skeffington, Louisa Todd Hunter, Jenny Wise Power. Imagine these women gathering one by one in Irish cities late in 1918 in a cold winter, each of them ready to enter history called to their duties as citizens to exercise this hard-won right, this franchise. They vote in the shadow of their past. They vote in the light of what will be. Their new nation, whose quest for freedom speaks to their own. If we could only summon or see them, these women, foremothers of the nurture and dignity that will come to all of us from this day. We could say across the century to each one, give me your hand. It has written our future. Our future will become the past of other women. Our island that was once settled and removed on the edge of Europe is now a bridge to the world. And so we share this day with women everywhere, for those who find the rights they need to be hard won, not guaranteed, not easily given. Sorry. For each one, we have a gift, a talisman, the memory of these Irish women who struggled and prevailed for whose sake we choose these things to their date, to honour, to remember, and to celebrate. All those who called for it, the vote for women, all those who had the faith that voices can be raised, can be heard, all those who saw their hopes become the law, all those who woke in a new state, flowering, 
from an old nation and found justice no longer blind, inequity set aside and freedom redefined. Thanks, Stephen Boland. And thank you to all of you. Um, the Women's Podcast is produced by me, Roshi Ningle, and by Jennifer Ryan, who can't be here tonight. Um, and on sound, as always, we have uh, our very sound man, JJ Vernon, who deserves a round of applause because he makes us sound great. Um, and please tell all your friends about the Women's Podcast because we do think we do something quite unique in Irish broadcasting and that we're always championing what's going on with Irish women. We're always trying to be inclusive as much as we can and Alice referred to that earlier and we're trying to tell the stories that need to be told about women in this country at the moment so it would be great if you can share that because some people don't even know it exists but we called it the women's podcast so that if you were googling women and podcast it would come up some people wanted us to have a cleverer name or some pun and I just thought no because if people are looking for women's podcasts then we're going to be up the top so that's what happened um, so thank you all very much for joining us thanks to our amazing guests and uh, have a glass of wine if we're still allowed and thank you so much. Thank you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.